Our scripture reading from this morning is Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. Well, church, as you know, uh, Pastor Jeff is at Central, GCF Central, um, preaching the word there. And it's my pleasure to introduce Brett. He's the lead pastor over at GCF Central. We have the blessing of getting to hear him this morning. And uh, every time I see Brett, it just reminds me of God's wonderful, wonderful blessing to his children. And the reason why is because um, all of us who had planted here, the hundred or so people, uh, came from Brett's leadership. He was our pastor over at Central, and he had to sacrificially release us to come plant here. And it just reminds me, I mean, it sees, you know, we see how much we've grown as a church, and um, it, it's a huge blessing. So it's an honor to have Brett here. I wanted to introduce him, so please give him a warm welcome. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Good morning. Happy to see you. Many familiar faces, many unfamiliar faces, which are just exciting for me, just as exciting for me to see. Uh, my name is Brett Sweet. I'm happy to be here. And let me pray. Keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. We're going to be referring back to that repeatedly. And we're going to ask God to help us. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, how remarkable could it be that Jesus would be born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. And Lord, if that's true, then there is nothing that I could say that would have any sort of impact compared to the power of your word. So we pray that we would be a people this morning who rely on your, your word and your spirit and not on ourselves. And that we would be humble and we would recognize the miracle and need we have for God to become man in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help me to be useful. Help me to do more good than harm this morning. Help me to be forgettable, but we pray that these truths would impact our hearts and change our lives forever. For Jesus' sake, amen. My favorite Disney song is from the movie The Jungle Book, the old Jungle Book cartoon. And uh, my favorite song is not The Bare Necessities. It is I Want to Be Like You, 
Many of you know the scene, the, the idea, King Louis, this orangutan, this king, he's the king of the monkeys, but he wants to be like Mowgli. He wants to be a man. He wants to be like a human so that he can have power over fire and control over the people, really the animals around him. That's what King Louis needs. He needs fire. He needs to be like man. And it's the chorus that's so catchy. Allow me to rap it to you so I don't sing it. Oh, Ubi do, I want to be like you. I want to talk like you. Walk like you, too. Now, we can imagine this anthropomorphic animal wanting to be like humans. We, we might even imagine our faithful dog who looks at us, admires us for feeding it, petting it giving it toys around Christmas. There might be times when it aspires to be human, to be like us. You inspire him. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, we hear something that should astound us. Jesus wants to be like you. He wants to be like you, like me. So my big idea is actually a question. It's this question, why could Jesus want to be like you? Why could Jesus want to be like you? That's really what Advent, Christmas are all about, about the eternal Son of God coming, becoming man forever, to be like you. We're going to look at two answers to that question, why could Jesus want to be like you? But before I tip my hand there, some of you who don't know me are probably a little nervous. Some of you are thinking, is this guy a heretic? So let me give you a little introduction before we get into those two main points. I once read a joke uh, by an Irish person who was sick of U2's lead singer Bono inserting himself everywhere on the world stage. And the joke was this. What's the difference between Jesus and Bono? Answer, Jesus doesn't think he's Bono. <laughs> Jesus, God the Son, does not need to be a rock star. He does not want to be a rock star. So this is the introduction idea right here. Jesus wants to be like you in one certain way. One way. Having flesh and blood. Jesus wants to be like you by having flesh and blood. That's the way Jesus wants to be like you. So let us humble ourselves for a moment. You do not inspire Jesus. You don't have something he needs. He is not King Louis pining over a fire, hoping he can have what you have, be like you. He doesn't want to live up to your example. The eternal Son of God entered, Jesus, or he entered Mary's womb, lived there for nine months, and then was born. And lived, born in a little, uh, placed in a manger we know, because he needed and wanted to be like you in one specific way, to have flesh and blood. So let us humble ourselves with that. Jesus doesn't need you. Jesus doesn't worship you. But Jesus wants to be like you in one way your flesh and blood. So now let's go back to the question, why? If that's how he, could, he wants to be like you, why would Jesus want to be like you? And we're going to look at two overlapping answers. The first answer, answer number one, is to die. 
That's why Jesus wants to be like you, to die, to die. The second answer, reason why Jesus would want to be like you is to be your high priest. That'll be the second answer, to be your high priest. So we'll look at first, the answer is because he wants to die, and the second is to be your high priest. So question again, why could Jesus want to be like you? Answer number one, to die. Now this is the biggest and main point of this passage of Scripture. The big idea, Jesus has come to die. Now this is a very profound thing to me when I think about it. Because when I think what it means to be human, the things that are really good about being human, and there are things that are really bad about being human. But probably the worst thing about being human, theologically, is sin. It's sin. But the worst thing, but we don't always hate our sin. And so the thing we really abhor the most, hurts us the most, is death. And yet, that's one of the reasons Jesus came to be like you, took on flesh and blood like you, is to die. So why would he like to come and die? So we're going to look at a reason here. One of the reasons Jesus comes to die and be like you is to destroy the devil, to destroy the devil. So that's reason number one under that first answer. The reason Jesus would want to die is to destroy the devil. Look with me at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So now the the author of Hebrews, if we enter into the beginning of the book, he is dealing with a, a variety of things. But one of the things he's saying is, how could God adopt humans to be his sons and daughters? How could he secure our adoption? He has to take on flesh and blood. Jesus wants to be like you in your flesh and blood so that he could die. So he could die. But in doing so, he does that by destroying the devil. He's got to destroy the devil in order to adopt us, it seems. There's the ancient military strategist, Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War. He's famously said, know your enemy and know yourself. And you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. So that has been inserted into our everyday language. We always say, know your enemy. And our enemy is the devil. So we need to take a minute here and think about about the devil. Learn a little bit about him. What do we know about him? And what this passage tells us is that the devil has the power over death. The power of death. But how does that work? See, the devil is a fallen angel. And in Hebrews 1 and 2... What's very interesting is that the author of Hebrews has picked up a hammer and he is pounding on one nail again and again and again. And he's pounding on this idea that the sun is superior to angels. The sun is superior to angels. And what we learn is that Satan is an angel with power of death. But that seems like that's God's power. So so why would the author of Hebrews seem to elevate Satan, elevate the devil here? 
Well, what it seems to be the case is that Satan is our enemy. He is allied with our other enemies. And what we learn is that death is our enemy. And that death will be destroyed. If you read Revelation 20, verse 14, both death and Satan are thrown into an eternal, eternal fire of hell. So we in our flesh and blood, and due to our sin that we've inherited from Adam, and the sin we've committed, are subject to death. But Jesus came like us in our flesh and blood so that he could die. So he could die. And in doing so, he destroyed the power of the devil over us. That word for destroyed means render inoperative. It doesn't work. He doesn't have that sort of power anymore. And what we know is that in the future, the devil will be totally destroyed in an unending destruction where he suffers forever. So why could Jesus want to be like you? Why would he want to die? To destroy the devil. Now some of us kind of like, that's kind of an interesting thought. But it doesn't really impact us much. In 2015, the mainstream media and social media was all ablaze. It seemed like there was a murder that had taken place. There was someone with a name who was dead. And that name was Cecil. Cecil the lion. A rich American dentist had traveled to Zimbabwe to hunt lions, and Cecil had wandered out of this park, preserve, and in front of a bullet. People were upset. Do you know who the people who were, were upset? Those who lived the furthest from Cecil. People in South Africa, they, they considered it kind of a small incident, no big deal. People in Namibia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, they didn't care. They weren't bothered at all. But Americans and Canadians and English, they were up in arms. Why is this? Because we never really faced the danger of the lion. Didn't bother us. A close friend of mine in college, he's an elder at his church on the west side. He grew up in Kenya, and he pretty much described this same phenomenon to me from growing up in Kenya. And here's, here's someone who grew up in Zimbabwe. This guy was a Ph.D. student at the time. And he says this, in my village in Zimbabwe, surrounded by wildlife conservation areas, no lion has ever been beloved or granted an affectionate name. They are objects of terror. The lions are enemies. And yet, we have this enemy here, whether we're willing to admit it or not, this devil goes around roaring and prowling like a lion, First Peter tells us. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, looking all the time. Who can I harm? And Jesus wants to be like you, your flesh and blood, so he can die. Why? So he can destroy the devil. That's really good news this morning. If this passes off indifferently to you, and this is the great thing about being a guest preacher, I don't know any of you, I can make you all mad, and I just go somewhere else. It could be if, if destroying the work of the devil doesn't make you rejoice, the odds are you should be deeply concerned about your soul. 
Because you have an enemy. If you're a Christian, Satan is after you. You want him destroyed. And if you don't care, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. There's a good chance that you're indifferent to spiritual things. The good and evil don't really matter to you. So take that offense, do with it what you will. Write me a mini email. But here's the good news this morning. Jesus came to be like you. Oh, ooby-doo. In your flesh and blood so he could die. Why die? To destroy the devil. That's the first reason Jesus would come to die. And then there's a second reason. Reason number two why Jesus would want to die, and that's to free us. To free us. To bring us out of slavery and free us. Look at verses 15 through 16 with me. And, this is talking about Jesus, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of David, of Abraham, excuse me, getting Matthew in my mind. There are a few ways that Jesus frees us by his death, but specifically this text tells us he frees us from the fear of death. Fear of death. Now, I'm sure this is a room full of brave people. I don't doubt that for a minute. But on your own, really, the reality is we're all afraid of death. We're all a little afraid of death. Uh, I read, I don't know how it came up. It's probably Google spying on me. But uh, this NPR article or something came up about this fear of death. And I, and I read the transcript. It's these psychologists who are studying the fear of death. And they did. They operated on some very interesting um, theories from this guy named Ernest Becker. We don't need to get into that. But anyhow, they, they started collecting data about fear of death. And the way they would conduct experiments was kind of interesting to me. What they would do is they would have a control group, and they would ask them questions, a series of questions about all sorts of things. And then they would ask the same set of questions to another group of people, and they would, they would do a few things slightly differently. They would just ask a couple questions that reminded them that they were going to die. Or they would ask the questions in front of a cemetery. They'd meet in front of a cemetery, interview them. And the people in the outside the control group answered very differently. Judges, for example... Justices and judges would give way, way, way more severe punishments to crimes than those who weren't near the cemeteries. People started to elevate themselves as they started to think about the fact that they're going to die. They, they would basically try to amplify, amp up their self-esteem. So they would emphasize their race or their religion or their political party and start to be more harsh towards those around them because they're afraid. In fact, this one was kind of funny, that when people who had the fear of death, when they were outside the control group, and they were doing like a taste test with like uh, hot sauce, and they learned that people that they were beside were from a different political party, they would douse like crackers with way, way, way more hot sauce and give it to the people on the other party. Connecting back because this idea of death is coming in. So I've got to elevate myself. I've got to harm others. 
So I'm more severe. And think about how the fear of death impacts you. Parents. Boy, you get nervous sometimes. You read the headlines. Is it safe to send my kids to school? What if they wanted to be a missionary in North Africa or the Middle East? Can you let them go? Dads. You sit there and you think, boy, what happens if I die? Who's going to take care of my family? So you protect yourself. You make certain choices. You're afraid. You're a slave. And I'm like you. In verse 16, we learn that Jesus is helping this offspring of Abraham. That word help is a good translation. It's a legitimate translation. We shouldn't discard it. But what's really interesting is I was studying this passage. I looked back, and a bunch of old translators and interpreters translated it very differently in another legitimate way. It's not just helps. That word is grasps or holds on to. He holds on to people. So the, and, and not only that, he holds on to people when they're running away. So this Greek idea here is, here's how Jesus helps us overcome fear of death. Well, you're running away scared. Jesus grabs you. And he holds on to you. And he protects you. Shelters you. Comforts you. When you're afraid. That whole study of death, uh, fear of death, what was really interesting is those psychologists didn't call it death management theory. They called it terror management theory. It wasn't so much that death scared them. It was the, f it was the fear of death. They were scared of being afraid of dying more than the death itself. But here's the good news this morning. We just sing about this baby Jesus being born. He was born to set you free. Free from the fear of death. He came and wants to be like you. To die. To free you from the fear of death. The time is coming when you will go to sleep and the world around you will wake up and you will not. And they will be shocked and surprised. But God won't be. Or the time is coming where you look and you say, you know that mole, that seems new and different. And you go into the doctor and the doctor gives you a prognosis and the prognosis he gives you is months, not years. Or the time is coming when your kids, you can tell, are trying to bring up something kind of difficult for them, and they'll look at you and say, Mom, Dad, um, we really love you, and we're concerned. Uh, we don't think you can probably live on your own anymore. You need some help for these last few years. And then you think, well, if I move into that home or move in with them, that's going to be the last place I live. And you might be scared. You might be like those people in terror management theory. You might want to defend yourselves by elevating your self-esteem 
saying, no, I'm smarter than you, children. I raised you. You don't know what you're talking about. Or doctor, yeah, that kills other people, but it won't kill me. That's not the Christian response. The Christian response, actually, when you start to be afraid of death, is this. Merry Christmas. You say Merry Christmas, and your kids go, well, they've really lost it now because it's July. But you say, no, Merry Christmas, because Jesus was born. He was born to take on flesh and blood. Why? So he could die. Why die? So he could free you from fear of death. So you can free. Say, children, Merry Christmas. I've only got a year to live, but you know what? I'm actually going to try to serve you with the months I have. I'm not going to just serve myself. And you know what? Those people that have been enemies across the street, I'm actually going to move toward them. Let them know what I'm dealing with and tell them about Jesus and why I'm not afraid to die. And I'm going to be honest at times when I am afraid, but I'm going to believe that if Jesus really was born in the flesh, then he's come to free me from this fear. He's come to die. And then you can enjoy the people around you. You can enjoy the time you have, even if it's limited. So why could Jesus want to be like you? Oh, ooby-doo. Why could Jesus want to be like you, to have flesh and blood like you? The first answer, answer number one, is to die. Now let's move to answer number two to that question. Why could Jesus want to be like you? Answer number two is to be our high priest. To be our high priest. Huge theme in the book of Hebrews with all kinds of roots in the Old Testament. To be our high priest. Now, high priests, you'll remember, were the go-betweens between God and man. And now the problem is that God is holy, pure, sinless. And we are, dare I say it, the opposite. And so how can we bridge this gap? Now our Mormon neighbors would say, here's how you bridge that gap. You become God. But our Mormon neighbors have underestimated sin and underestimated God's holiness. They've done that because they've rejected God's word. But if we can't become God, and we need a high priest who, in a sense, has his feet in both camps, God must become man. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And that's what the Gospels tell us. And that's what we've been singing about. We have someone who's come to perfectly understand us and be our high priest. But what does being a high priest entail? Well, this high priest has to do something. So we'll look at three tasks, hopefully quickly. Task number one, what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, to take on flesh and blood and be our high priest. His first task, task number one, according to Hebrews, is to make propitiation. To make propitiation. Let's read verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we need a high priest because we can't approach God directly. You can't do it. You cannot do it. No amount of study is enough. 
no amount of money is enough. No moving to Idaho is enough. You need a high priest. We have to approach this holy God through a high priest. He wants nothing to do with that defilement of sin. He wants it destroyed and removed. And so some, language, some translations you'll look at there and you'll see different word than the ESV uses. You'll see something like make atonement or make reconciliation. And those ideas are entailed, but the deeper reality is this very important word, propitiation. Reconciliation, atonement, they flow out of propitiation. And that's what the Greek word really means. Now, you'll remember in the Old Testament sacrificial system that there's this covenant people of God. You're in Israel, and if you're in Israel, you're okay, but if you're outside Israel, you got problems. And within, oh, Taylor Swift came to my mind there. Now we got problems. But anyhow, we're, if you're in Israel, you're in good shape. Why? Because you have Someone there, a priest, who's making propitiation, who's offering substitutionary sacrifices, a lamb, a bull. And what does that do? It turns God's wrath towards sin, towards the covenant people, into favor. Think about that. Wrath, which is like divine anger that's justly aimed at someone, and turn not just to indifference, okay, I guess we'll leave them alone, but to favor, to I'm going to work for them, bless them, work for their good. But remember, that was only for those covenant people. So now we read here in Hebrews, the author tells us that he, Jesus has to be like us in every respect, in flesh and blood, so that he could be our high priest and offer to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So this sacrifice of Jesus, his willingness to die, this dying as a propitiatory sacrifice, it doesn't benefit everybody. You have to be in this covenant people, just like you had to be in Israel in the Old Testament. So Jesus becomes a sacrifice turning wrath into favor for Christians, his people, not for non-Christians. Now that's a hard thing to hear in a jolly time of year. But that's what we read here. Jesus willing to take people who deserve judgment and wrath and bring them into his family, if we go back to the first verses we've read, to do that. Now, how do you become one of God's people? You turn away from trusting in yourself. You turn away from fear of death. You turn away from following the devil, as Ephesians tells us. And you turn towards the one who came to be like you took on flesh and blood like you, to die for you. And if you don't do that, you don't have a propitiatory sacrifice. The wrath of God rests on you. 
But guess what? Not only did Jesus come to be born as a baby to offer himself as a sacrifice, he also pours out his spirit to help people believe. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, boy, I, I think I need to believe this. That's this Jesus at work. Turn. Don't go back. We love this little baby Jesus so much. We should. We should. We shouldn't ever give up on him. It's worth celebrating. This is the miracle of miracles. God becomes man. But we read here that Jesus didn't come just to be a baby. He didn't come just to have the giggling in the crib or to have a joyful childhood playing with his friends where we wish we could just get back to our childhood where everything was simpler. Jesus, Jesus here, he was born to grow up. And he grew up. He wanted to be like you in every respect when it comes to flesh and blood, to be your high priest so he could offer himself as a sacrifice. He had to grow up. Jesus' role as high priest meant that he could not be in the manger for long. Couldn't. He could not live a pleasant, comfortable life moment by moment. He became flesh and blood so he could suffer, as we'll see in just a moment. Came to save sinners. Because Jesus is our propitiation. But again, only for this covenant people. Now, some of you this morning are aware of your sins. You're aware of them. You argued with each other getting ready. Boy, if the pastor would have heard that, what would he think of you? If God would have heard that. Wait, he did. Or the way you continue to be so critical with your children, you never encourage them. All they're aware of is how harsh you are. Can't live up to your expectations. Your coworkers, if they knew what you thought about them, if they really knew, you, you one time you, you looked at your phone, you said, I didn't accidentally send that text to them, did I? Well, see, if Jesus is your propitiation, though, you're free. And it kills self-righteousness because you recognize the best I can do, the best I can do on my own is earn wrath. I work as hard as I can, and you know what it gets me? Hell. So I must be really good, right? Wrong. But here's the good news. Again, Jesus wants to be like you in your flesh and blood so he can make propitiation. And that means he exhausts wrath. No wrath left. So you think to yourself, gosh, how many ways I've failed. But Jesus died for me. Jesus took flesh and blood for me. I don't need to pay for it. I can apologize to my spouse. I can apologize to my kids and yet not be controlled by them. Because Jesus has done the work for me. Oh, that's good news. 
If you're in Christ, there is no wrath for you to pay. Your biggest problem has been dealt with. So you're here and you're thinking, well, my biggest problem is this guy keeps preaching. And I got a football game this afternoon. Actually, that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is God's wrath. And if you're a Christian, it's dealt with. That's good news. So Jesus took on flesh and blood. He wants to be like you, to be your high priest. And that means to make, his first task was to make propitiation. Now task number two, wrapped up in this, task number two is to suffer. Jesus came to suffer. This, of course, is implied in propitiation, but let's read the beginning of verse 18. There it is. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. So now think about your holiday plans for a second. Think about what you got going on the next couple weeks. And if you're like me, sometimes you make those decisions because you don't want to suffer. You think, you know, sweetie, let's hang out with your family this Christmas. Because, boy, when we hang out with mine, it's no fun. Or, you know, uh, is there any way we can avoid this pain? How can I get out of it? If we go spend time with them, they get angry. I start to feel tempted to get angry and get mistreated. It's better just call, right? We just want to avoid suffering. We want it to end. We want to get away from it. That's really what the Hebrews wanted. They're being persecuted for their faith, tempted to leave Christianity, go back to Judaism. Where that, that, that's a legal religion in the Roman Empire. We can just get away from suffering, then we'll be okay. Now, this makes Jesus look very glorious. Because what we see here is Jesus wants to be like you in your flesh and blood, not to avoid suffering, but to suffer, in order to suffer. Who, who is like this? The Buddha is just saying, here's how you escape suffering. Be like me. Jesus says, here's how you escape suffering. I suffer for you. I don't run from it. King Louis, he wants the fire. He wants the power of man's red flower. So he can make his life easier. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want to be like you so I can make my life harder. So I can suffer. Here's someone who understands you when you suffer. Someone who's willing to suffer. But see, Jesus is no mere masochist. He doesn't enjoy suffering. He suffers to eliminate suffering for billions of people. Bring them into heaven. No more sin or suffering there. So we have this Jesus who's like us in every respect. We're told he's a sympathetic high priest. He can sympathize. And here's the good news for you when you're suffering. When you're all suffering in some way. You know you are. The older you get, the less you can say, yeah, life is good. Mercy, you're like, yeah, it's going pretty well. You can be honest. 
you can actually be honest and say, this, this is really hard. God, I know you care because Jesus suffered, and he's my high priest. So you don't need to hide. You can have courage. So in your home groups, discipleship groups, um, whatever, you're gathering maybe just for a meal, you can actually say, would you guys help me with this? I've got a high priest who understands you're being made kind of like him. So let me tell you this really hard thing in my life. Maybe it's even your sin. Changes you. And see, all the other worldviews, here's the thing. Suffering, the whole point is to avoid suffering. And so when you suffer, your identity is under attack. You just wonder, like, is everything right with me? I'm suffering. The amazing thing is, if Jesus came to suffer by you suffering, he can actually use that for your good, make you like him. That's what Romans 8 28 and 29, talk about. Works all things for your good. What way? To be conformed to the image of Christ. So works suffering towards my good. By the way, suffering is your shortcut to sanctification. Those of you who are like, man, it's just been so hard for me to grow as a Christian. Your shortcut is to suffer. That will help you grow immensely. Uh, Don't seek it out necessarily, but just know that. He uses suffering for your good. He wants to be like you. He's your high priest. Jesus wants to be like you. He's your high priest, my high priest. We have three tasks he's done to make propitiation, to suffer, and now task number three, to help the tempted. Task number three is to help the the tempted. Help the tempted. Look at verse 18, last verse. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So like I said, Jesus is not a masochist. He doesn't just love suffering for its own sake. He took pain and suffering. Entered this world as a little baby so he could experience pain and suffering like you. To help you. And this should help us. And we're tempted. Jesus knows what that's like. Haven't you at times benefited from having an expert with you? Got that like house project or car project or computer problem. And then all of a sudden, and you're like getting kind of scared. I get what's called the paralysis by analysis. I'm like, oh man, that project could get even bigger. But then someone comes along with you. Says, no, 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 here's what we'll do. I've done this many times. Uh, here's what we'll do we'll fix this, and then we'll do this thing second. And then what's going to happen is that's going to solve this problem that would arise down the road. And you're like, oh, great, I'm so glad you're here. Well, Jesus is the expert. So when you're being tempted, Jesus comes along. You say, Jesus, I need help. I know you took on flesh and blood like me. We celebrated that at Christmas. You can help me. You've been tempted like this. Jesus says, yeah, I have. I know the way over or around or through it, and I'm with you. I'm with you. 
You might hear Jesus say, like, ooby-doo. I've been through this. Been like you. I am like you. Let me help you. Even if it involves suffering, you don't need to run. You don't need to be afraid of it. Have you ever noticed, too, that lots of times you meet someone new, and when you get to know them, people with some measure of people skills, I don't know if I'm one of them or not, will ask you questions about yourself. And then all of a sudden you find something you share in common, and then you just kind of, they kind of pound on that. Like, oh, you like hunting. Let's talk about hunting. You like uh, knitting. Let's talk about that. You have grandchildren. So do I. You kind of camp out there. And then over time, you start to realize, well, wait a second. This guy's trying to sell me stuff. Or this person, this neighbor keeps wanting to use my lawnmower. And people want to be like you so they can manipulate you, use you, harm you, take from you, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus wants to be like you to help you, care for you. So ooby-doo. I want to be like you. Jesus wants to be like you in your flesh and blood. To die. To die, the thing you're scared of. To die. Why? Why that? To destroy your enemy, the devil. To free you from that fear of death. To be your high priest. To make propitiation. To help you when you're suffering. To suffer himself. You cannot sing enough Christmas songs. You cannot sing them enough. Because Jesus has come to be like you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to rejoice. Lord, we're thankful that all of our deepest needs are met because Jesus has come to be like us. And we're thankful he reigns as our high priest at your right hand, Father. We pray that we would be a people who rejoice in that fact, who are shaped by that fact, who love because of that fact. We pray that this church would be blessed knowing they have a Savior who has come to be like them and accomplish all the work they could not. In Jesus' name, amen.